You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our throwback review of the 1991 film, The Silence of the Lambs. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, skins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Oh, he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? All right, everyone, you were just listening to the trailer for The Silence of the Lambs, and the story is as follows. Jodie Foster stars as Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI's training academy. Jack Crawford wants Clarice to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath, serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may have insight into a case and that Starling, as an attractive young woman, might just be the bait to draw him out. The film is starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn, Ted Levine, Anthony Held, and it is directed by the late great Jonathan Demme, written by Ted Talley. Joining us for this very special Patreon podcast review, part of the Last Best Picture series. I have Celia Shalekwe. Hey there. Josh Williams. What's going on, everybody? Danilo Castro. How's everybody doing? And also, because I always extend the offer to our dear Patreon listeners out there, we have joining us from that great, great, great group of supporters. Thank you all so much. Hannah Lawrence. Hey, hey. So, everyone... Silence of the Lambs. This is a big deal because this is one of only three films in the history of the Academy Awards to win the top five big Oscars. That's picture, director, screenplay, actor, and actress. The other two films being It Happened One Night and another film, which we also reviewed as part of the last Best Picture series, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So this film is... You know, it's iconic. There's no other way around it, as many of the films that we have reviewed so far on this series have been. What I'd like to do is I'd like to actually go around one at a time. I'd like to ask all of you, if you can recall, what was like the first time you ever saw the film? And what was this uh, most recent viewing like for you? So, Hannah, as our guest here, let's start off with you. What was your first experience like watching Silence of the Lambs, if you can remember? And what was this most recent viewing experience like? 
Yeah, so I'm actually kind of embarrassed to admit that I've only seen it one time. Oh. <laughs> and it was, yeah, and it was back in February. So it's kind of recent, actually, and top of mind for me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I absolutely loved it. But, yeah, so I actually have some pretty fresh impressions. Well, wait, wait, so February was the first time you've seen a period? Yeah, ever, ever. <laughs> ah! Oh, well, my it, Lord. Well, <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, my God, it's amazing that it's eluded you for this long. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, it's awesome. I loved it. First time though. Oh, that's awesome to hear. Okay. Very good. Josh Williams. I haven't heard from you in a while here on the podcast. What, what did you ultimately think of Silence of the Lambs the first time you saw it? And what it was your most recent time like? Uh, I saw it for the first time probably two or three years ago, and I'll be—I was a bit underwhelmed on the first go around. Mm, interesting. I don't know. I don't think I totally. <laughs> I don't think I totally grasped like the, the film as a whole when I first saw it. Um, it just kind of went over my head. Obviously, I knew that I thought the direction was sharp and the performances were really great. Um, but there was just something about it that kind of missed me. But I did really love and I constantly would think about the night vision scene, which I'm sure we'll get into a little later. Um, but I just didn't really it didn't hit me with its full impact. And so this most recent time is only my second viewing of the film. What? And it hit me on a completely different level this time around. I think as I've like gotten older and learned a little bit more about film and studied it more and more, there's a much larger appreciation I've grown to have for the movie. So it is definitely much higher up on my list now than it previously was. And I'm sure for all the reasons why that appreciation has grown, we'll get into in more further discussion here. Celia. Um, so my first time viewing it was about maybe four years ago. I was I was a freshman in college and I was living in the dorms. So me and a few friends like packed into my tiny dorm room on my fairly small TV and watched it. And I remember at the time being kind of confused because the uh, the girls I was watching with, they were terrified. And I was not, you know, I thought it was suspenseful and I thought it was tense, but I wasn't scared of it per se this time was my second time viewing it just like josh and i thought maybe it's because i saw it in a different environment i saw it with two other people but it was a way bigger television screen and you know all the lights were off and it was definitely a lot more freaky this time around but yeah it totally held up still just like an amazing, like an amazing film. You wouldn't, ch I wouldn't change anything about it. You know, you don't look at any one scene and think, oh, this could have been tweaked. Like, no, all of it was perfect. Okay, Danilo. So like Celia and like Josh Ridley, this was my second time seeing it. What? You guys are all babies. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> oh. So the first time I saw it, I don't, I, I forgot. I was somewhere in my teens and I loved it except for one thing that really I wasn't a big fan of, and that's Jodie Foster's performance, <gasps> which is, I know, I know. Blasphemy. <laughs> I know. I'm not a huge fan of Jodie Foster, and that was the thing that I, like, like was stuck in my head, like, after I had seen it was like, oh, it's great. I just, I'm not a huge fan of, like, her performance. So watching it this time, I really, really, like, was, like, trying to embrace her performance and appreciate the little things because I want to get over that hump so I can just outright love the movie. And I did end up liking her performance more. I still don't love it, but I ended up liking it more. So it's it's increased my enjoyment of the movie a little bit, which, I, you know, like I said, I loved it the first time out the gate. Other than that. Well, when we get around to talking about Jodie Foster, I want to hear some more detail behind that. OK, so I'm going to go way back in time 
and I'm going to talk about the early 90s and how I was drawn to this poster. Drawn to it. The idea of just seeing this pale face with the moth over the mouth, I was like, what is this? I don't know what this is. I, I, I want to watch it, and the VHS tape was right there. And my aunt was a very, very big supporter of my movie-watching uh, es- escapades, and she was also a big Jodie Foster fan. And she was like, oh, that's really scary. She's like, you, sh- you, should-, you should wait a little while before you watch that. But, if- but you know, if your parents give you permission, maybe I'll pop it in for you, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I'm like, you know, this young your grandma kid. sounds like Jack Nicholson. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like preteen here, and... I'm like, you know, getting all excited about watching this movie. I'm not supposed to watch it. My parents, of course, were like, no, you can't watch that. That is the most disturbing movie ever made. They're like, that is like the scariest movie ever. And that's what I grew up knowing about this movie. I I knew that it was the scariest, most disturbing movie because that's what I was told by my parents. And as a child, when you hear that, you really take that to heart. So finally, when I did watch the movie... I watched it, by the way, not on VHS, because I I respected my parents' wishes. I waited until... I remember watching it on DVD, and... (laughs) Oh, man, I remember being underwhelmed, too, because I was not scared of it. And I also... I mean, I, I have to admit, I didn't think it was disturbing, but only because I guess my mindset was very different when I was younger. Now I find it more disturbing, even though I've seen it countless times. Uh, But maybe I just had it so hyped up in my head. But... One thing was for certain, and that is that I found it to be totally gripping, and I thought the performance by Anthony Hopkins as this psychopath, this cannibal, this brilliant madman, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, it just blew my mind when I saw it. And then I, through over the years, I've, I've constantly revisited the movie time and time and time again. And I've actually grown to appreciate it more with each subsequent viewing. The film is now 27 years old. I myself am 28 years old. I, I know I called you all babies before. I'm not that much older than you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but this movie has been around for almost my entire lifetime. And it's one of those movies that as a result of which kind of has evolved like, like my appreciation for it has evolved over the course of my lifetime, it feels like, which is, you know, very interesting in a sort of way. So this most recent viewing was interesting because it was the first time I ever took notes while watching the movie. So that was unique. I also didn't feel the need to watch it normally. I watched it with audio commentary. So that was a lot of fun uh, this time around. I watched it on uh, my brand new Criterion Blu-ray set. They recently re-released it on there. So um, I was really, really happy to pop that in and get a chance to listen to the audio commentary track, which was recorded in 1994. So with that said, the film is absolutely incredible. Let's start off right off with the beginning. The opening sequence of the film is not a training montage, but to show the credits, they basically show Clarice at the FBI uh, training compound, and she's going through these different obstacles. And this is our way to get introduced to our protagonist, our point of view character, the person who we will follow throughout the entire movie, with the exception of one or two scenes where we do break away and we do see things from Hannibal Lecter's point of view and also from Buffalo Bill's point of view. But Clarice is our main character. And this is a very, very unique type of character. Still, in many ways, 
because of how she is written and how she is portrayed throughout the film as being this not just rookie FBI agent, but this female rookie FBI agent. Mm -hmm. And I want to just start off with that. So right off from the very, very beginning with this opening credit sequence, what was everyone's first impressions of Clarice? Uh, I was thinking as I was kind of reflecting on my first watch of it that um, I think it's a great character to just point to as it's honestly, she's a female lead that and hero really that was kind of uncharacteristic for the time. There just weren't a lot of characters that were written, um, you know, that showed kind of the grit that she has. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think the opening scene like really demonstrates that just kind of shows how she's, yeah, just kind of persistent and obviously going to get the job done. And I was reading a little trivia about it, and uh, it was interesting to learn that Jonathan Demi, when he was interviewing her for the um, for the role, um, or when she was auditioning, that um, just her determination like came off right off the bat, even as she was just kind of walking towards him down the hall. So I personally think Foster does a great job in this role. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll be curious to hear. Uh, everyone else's opinion on her specific execution. Yeah, it's interesting because like Jodie Foster is the one who's actually doing the obstacles in the beginning of the film. I'm like, there's one part in particular where she climbs up um, this this like hill and she like rolls down and like somersaults all the way down, lands on her feet and keeps running. And it's not a stunt double; it's clearly Jodie Foster who's doing it. So when you talk about how showing her grit and determination. Jodie Foster as an actress herself is also bringing that to the role. So we immediately get the impression that this is a character who will, uh, to quote, uh, <laughs> quote something like in the loop, climb the mountain of conflict, so to speak, uh, <laughs> and will uh, go against adversity to achieve her goal. I, I think that that's all. I think that's really clearly set up in the beginning. Yeah, I put her up there like with Ripley from Alien. I mean, I think, again, I just think she she really does. I don't know, just perform, does the performance just super well. And I really, yeah, I really liked her character. I really appreciated how um, they didn't really sacrifice her personality. I don't want to say her femininity because clearly she, you know, blended in with the rest of the men as far as like what she was wearing and how she was acting and things like that. She takes charge in a lot yeah. of scenes, actually, and kind of tells the men what to do, which is great <laughs> yeah but yeah and in that and in that opening scene you know she's she's running and she's really intense and she's sweating and she's not even self-conscious about it and like all this stuff and she walks down that hallway very intently but then she stops to high five someone you know what i mean like she's clearly mm -hmm. not scared of her environment you know what i mean like i feel like a lot of when you see women in these roles a lot of times they're made to be like falsely insecure and it was kind of nice to see her just be like you know fully confident in her ability to keep up with everybody around her one of the things i really appreciate about the character of clarice and how she is portrayed uh you're right in that she is portrayed to be confident uh smart even though she you know is considered to be this rookie fbi agent she handles herself with dignity and she's not scared of anything, like you were saying. She breathes, you know, going down this long hallway when we're introduced to Hannibal Lecter and she's passing all the other guys in the cell and all the things that they're saying to her. She, she like, maintains her resolve. And what I find so fascinating about this movie every time I watch it is how 
little by little, piece by piece, the psychology of this movie and how we actually come to understand Clarice because Hannibal Lecter himself is a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. He psychoanalyzes her, peels back the layers, and I think those layers and and the depth that uh, Jodie Foster gives to that performance, especially when we get to uh, near the end, Oh, I mean, like, Danilo, I hope I'm, like, help, helping your appreciation of her performance here. I really, I really do. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're my psychoanalyst right now. You're helping me. Do it. <laughs> Very good, Danilo. Very good. <laughs> so, you know, we, we go through this opening uh, with her in the woods. And I, one thing I do want to point out that I noticed, I wrote this down as a note here. And I have, like, little random notes all sprinkled throughout. I love how there's this sign that says, hurt, agony, pain, love it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yes. and to me, it's almost like a message for the whole movie, in a sense. Like, there's going to be a lot of hurt. There's going to be a lot of agony. There's going to be a lot of pain. And you as an audience are going to love it. And at the same time, this is a character who has experienced her own level of hurt that is showcased through flashbacks in the film. Right. And her relationship that she has with her father. And one of the things that I find very interesting about that is uh, how, in many ways, Clarice Starling's journey in this uh, throughout this film. And one of the themes, actually, for the film in, in general is, is the quest for identity and how I guess like that message of hurt, agony, pain, love it. She comes to embrace who she is. And I, I'm not saying she doesn't love herself like in the beginning or anything like that, but she, she is able to embrace that trauma and that pain and really is able to harness that. And, you know, despite all that, still is able to achieve like her goals in the end. And I, I, that's how I read into that, at least, you know. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of points to the fact of like, like you were saying that it's the theme of the overall movie. Like we get to see, you know, all this pain and the anguish or agony that Buffalo Bill is inflicting on everybody. And she kind of deals with her own pain when trying to pull information out of Hannibal Lecter and she kind of loves it. You know, she doesn't, she wouldn't do it. if She didn't love it. She obviously clearly, from as we see from the opening credits, she really wants to be in the FBI and she really wants to impress her superiors. And she really wants to get this job and she's going to do whatever it takes because she loves it. It's not like she's trying to do it for some other reason. It's just as simple as like, that's what she wants. She loves it and she wants to be a part of it. So. Well, I, I'm actually going to take it to task on that because I also think that it's not just, the fact that she loves her job and, you know, she feels that she's doing a good thing in the world. But I do believe that the film maybe creates this subliminal connection to the fact that Buffalo Bill's victims are all women. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's a coincidence that she herself is also a woman and that she maybe has a tie to this case as a result of that. Yeah. Like an emotional connection. No, certainly. Yeah. I think it's interesting how, um, uh, yeah, just the connection between like, you know, well, so I guess they were going to cast Michelle Pfeiffer in the role. I really do think that Jodie Foster is a better pick for this just because even though, um, Michelle Pfeiffer probably would have been a little bit of a bigger draw, even though Jodie Foster was like a child actor and there was obviously that piece of it. Um, she'd also won the Oscar, uh, two years yeah. uh, prior to this actually for that's the accused. Right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so she, I just feel like she's a little more plain, let's be honest. And I just feel like she adds kind of this, like, there's definitely like a, 
you know, feminist kind of like vibe going on through the whole thing where she's kind of reclaiming like, you know, we're going to have the power like over like we're going to have the power over these situations over like the men who are trying to, you know, dominate us. I don't know. I feel like Jodie Foster is able to carry that kind of vibe in a way that someone like Michelle Pfeiffer maybe not have been able to pull off. Well, I think the, I think the key there is maybe relatability. Yeah, I feel like like Jodie Foster is the, is not the glammed up movie star that we would maybe have trouble connecting to. People yeah. grew up with Jodie Foster in the movies, like you said, she was a child actress, and we feel like we know her, we we love her, and we cherish her, and. She, she, you know, she, she's the type of uh, actress that I feel like when we watch this uh, film, especially um, because of the way that she's written and how the performance does come across, I, I would find it very, very, very difficult to believe that somebody could like look me in the eye and say, oh, I can't relate to that character at all. I, 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 I don't believe in that character. I can't connect with that character. And I'm like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And she brings a like a measure of empathy to the role that I think is also part of her motivation. Like she seems like she really does have, there's like a mutual respect almost and empathy between her and Dr. Lecter. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the two uh, definitely respect each other. Some might say that they're even in love. Um, I'm going to imitate his voice a lot during this, by the way, I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, But I I do think that this turning point for her is the autopsy scene. Mm, Yeah. Did anyone else get, did anyone else catch that? Yeah. I think that, I think that um, Jodie Foster's power in this role and I agree where Michelle Pfeiffer probably couldn't handle well, she could handle it, but it, it would come across a lot different. It would be different, yeah. Foster is a lot more subtle, mm-hmm. and she's a lot more... Uh, it's unexpected, the kind of strength that she shows. You know, just yeah. looking at her, you wouldn't think that she can portray that kind of strength. She's tiny. She's portrayed as being tiny compared to everyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, she especially like ever since she was young, she's always sold her roles a lot based on her looks. And by Jodie Foster, like you said, being kind of plain and average looking and, you know, small and you could, you just don't look at her and think strength, but especially in that um, autopsy scene. Yeah. She totally just takes charge of the room in a way that's very unexpected. Mm -hmm. I think that the entire tension of the movie is very gender based and if it wasn't done as subtly as it is, it would not have been nearly as successful. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but this is a preview of the full review for Silence of the Lambs from the Next Best Picture podcast. In order to get the full review, head on over to our Patreon website where for $1 minimum a month, you can get this review and other exclusive podcasting content from the team over here at nextbestpicture.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, CastBox, and also from Acast. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your support. And as always, we shall see you all next time. History is complicated, 
The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.